Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And um, we've we got a bit of a kind of a welcome return this week to looking at, obviously, one of the books that we've spent most time over the last few years examining, which is Everyday Stalinism by Sheila Fitzpatrick. Now, uh, full admission here, the reason why we haven't had this for quite a long time uh, is because it was lost my copy was hidden uh, in some deep recess of my vast uh, archive of history books <clears throat> but hey hey here we are so last time we were look we got towards the end of the book um, and we were looking at the beginnings of the the great terror um, of the late 1930s uh, and here we, we're going to look at the almost the kind of the social aspect of the great terror um, as in all periods of state violence, um, there are a lot of kind of everyday participants, you know, the pointers of fingers, the denouncers, um, who are uh, participants or victims or swept along with things or simply witnesses. Okay, so Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, In the terror of 1937, there was a clear sense that enemies of the people were likely to be found in the elites, especially uh, communist administrators. 
but enemies might be found anywhere. Even within the elites, there were no clear guidelines as to which persons needed to be unmasked. Of course, someone with black marks on his record, past oppositionism, bad social origins, foreign connections, was particularly at risk, and prepared lists of victims played a role in the Great Purges. But there, were, there was a large element of randomness in the selection process too. Finger-pointing at self-criticism meetings in offices and enterprises, public accusations in newspapers, and private denunciation by citizens were among the selection mechanisms. Chains of association were also very important too. The NKVD would pull in one person and interrogate them, asking them to name his criminal associates. When he finally broke down and named some names, they would be in turn be pulled in. And the process continued. When anyone was arrested as an enemy of the people, family, friends and work associates all became high-risk candidates. OK, so there's a, a lot to kind of un unpack there. Um, List-making um, was a, a significant factor because of the, obviously, the uh, bureaucratic nature of Soviet society meant that there were lists um, of people, censuses and uh, uh, card indexes and vast reams of data on people uh, all over the place. The, um, the, the thing that the Bolsheviks had uh, and, and the Stalinists had excelled in was creating this very sort of uh, I would hasten, uh, so hesitate to use the word data rich because a lot of it was wildly inaccurate. But this kind of um, paper trail society, um, where uh, I mean, it was partly something inherited from the third section and the Akrana, who were great keepers of, uh, of files on subversive types, but rolled out to uh, huge swathes of society. If you wanted to start looking for enemies, you didn't have you do it on the streets. You did it in the archives. Um, however, the the randomness is uh, is a really important point. Um, and when you get public buy-in and participation, and this is something that isn't really said enough about the purges, is that they were a kind of a, a mass participation um, process. And that, um, as with uh, denunciation uh, under the, the Nazi regime, there were citizens who believed they were doing the right thing and that they were suspicious, unpatriotic, or um, anti-revolutionary or dangerous types next door and uh, we've been keeping an eye on them. And it, it was a way of um, sometimes even being re rewarded by the, the regime. So though there were plenty of denouncers themselves who wound up in the gulags or in front of the firing squad. Um, one of the key processes, writes Sheila Fitzpatrick, of terror in the Great Purges, particularly in the first half of 1937, was public scapegoating. This took place at meetings at the workplace, uh, whose function was to draw conclusions from some signal um, from, uh, from above. Uh, for example, uh, the Piatikov trial or the February to March plenum of the Central Committee. There, were, um, there would be a report explaining the significance of the signal, followed by a collective discussion on the conclusions that should be drawn. This was a well-established Soviet practice, but in the context of terror, it acquired a new purpose. Drawing conclusions came to mean pointing the finger at hidden enemies within the institution. So in factories across the Soviet Union, following the trial um, and sentencing of Piatikov, 
uh, or you know Bukharin or Zinoviev or, or whoever a question in a factory in Kursk or Chelyabinsk or somewhere like that would be well who who are his supporters here well I, I heard comrade so-and-so had expressed sympathies towards his point of view um, and or what has gone wrong here well I think that there has been you know there was a breakage on the production line well that was very probably sabotage and probably the I, the, the Piatikov element has, has been causing trouble well who do we think is in the element well I think it's comrade so and so and it's, it's that that kind of thing um, and there were the reason why we call it signals from above is because there, there would be party bosses and uh, factory bosses looking at things like the Piatikov trial and thinking, well, what is Comrade Stalin trying to tell me is, is the right thing to do here? Um, and if I do do it, what kind of advancement will I get? Ah, right, well, he's clearly demonstrating people with these sorts of views and sympathies are, are the enemies now. Well, you know, I'd better do my bit here and root, root them out. These meetings were sometimes described as criticism and self-criticism sessions. This is obviously something that uh, Mao uh, picks up and runs with after 1949. But self-criticism was really a misnomer. Apologies and recantations by individuals occurred, though they rarely affected the outcome. But the drama of the occasion lay elsewhere. The institution, not the individual, was the subject of self-criticism. The point of criticism and self-criticism, great purges style, was collective discovery of a hidden enemy within the ranks, usually one of the leaders of the institution. The outcome was not generally predetermined. The, le um, the implicit requirement was that, the, uh, was that a scapegoat should be found, and that he should not be an insignificant person when the institution could easily, uh, the, uh, the institution could easily sacrifice. Tension could mount intolerably in these sessions just because of the uncertainty about who the ultimate victims would be. Why do we need under Stalinist conditions to be finding hidden enemies? Well, because this is the, the underlying narrative of the entire regime. The, uh, the, the Stalinist regime said, well, we were surrounded. Um, there are capitalist powers all around us and they're little lackeys, places like Poland and Germany and Japan on our, our borders. Um, and, and, you know, they're going to get us one fine day. They've invaded us. Um, during the First World War and then during the Russian Civil War and, and you know, we, we need to be building up um, the uh, Soviet state, we need to be arming it and this is why I'm having these five-year plans but there are all these enemies in our midst um, and they, they look like us, they walk amongst us some of them even pretend to talk like us they've, you know, they've infiltrated the party that well um, there are people who claim that they are revolutionary and they're not and you need to look behind the mask. And this was the language that Stalin used during uh, collectivization. He, he basically said this of the Kulaks. He said, you know, they, at first glance, they sort of look like Soviet citizens, but they're not really. Deep inside their minds, those are the little capitalists trying to get out, uh, and, and what they, uh, all the things they do to cause ruin and um, in the country, and you know prevent food from getting to the cities that's all sabotage i mean part of it is the the personal paranoid thinking of stalin but you it's very difficult to explain structural things 
big structural changes by looking at personalities alone in some ways it's, it's a shared ideological position um, which has some basis in truth I mean yeah sure I mean the Soviet Union pretty much is um, surrounded by hostile capitalist powers and no doubt there were all sorts of uh, people opposed to the Soviet Union Union crossing over its very poorest borders but the for the most part the peoples targeted in the in the purges had absolutely nothing to do with any of this and or the 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 stories uh, of vast conspiratorial networks are a kind of the works of uh, of, of collective fevered imaginings Sheila Fitzpatrick writes one model for this form of scapegoating came out of the Stakhanovite movement. If you remember when we talked about Stakhanovites a long, long time ago now, these were the uh, the model workers, people who were able to... Um, uh, who were able to fulfil vast work quotas and, and even kind of go beyond those. And they were uh, kind of held up as the, um, uh, the, the kind of the model for the other workers to, to emulate. Um, one model for this form of scapegoating came out of the Stakhanovite movement, which in 1936 had developed a strong anti-management overtones. The Stakhanovites in local management collectives taking a lead in denouncing managers and wreckers and saboteurs as wreckers and saboteurs. A secret instruction from the Politburo in early 1937 instructed factory managers to hold monthly meetings with Stakhanovite workers uh, so that Stakhanovites could vent their criticisms and accusations. The newspapers reported dramatic occasions when workers hurled abuse at unpopular managers. The epithets Goebbels, bureaucratic barbarians and donkey's ears were used at, uh, at one meeting. But this zest for denunciation was not universal. In some plants, it seems workers grew weary of giving up their free time to wrestle with the question of which of their managers were wreckers. We know that we know of several cases where workers tried to short circuit the process by simply nominating a list of candidates for wrecker status and voting to approve it. Another scapegoating mechanism was the re-election of party officers called for in the name of um, called for in the name of party democracy at the February March plenum of the Central Committee. The, sable, the label sounded innocuous, but every party secretary present must have recognised it as part of the complex of threats to his security that were offered on, the, on that occasion. It must be remembered that in normal circumstances, party democracy, like Soviet democracy, existed only as a fiction. The convention in both contexts was that elections were essentially uncontested. The candidates were, no, uh, were nominated according to lists sent down from a higher authority, uh, which, then, uh, which were then duly confirmed by voting. When it became clear in the spring of 1937 that party elections under the rubric of party democracy meant that there would be no lists, that there was, ma um, uh, that was a major shock and not a welcome one. On what basis were candidates for party office to be selected if the central party organs refused to indicate whom they favoured? In a context where more communist officials were being unmasked as enemies of the people every day, how could one avoid the ultimate horror of electing someone who had turned out to be an enemy, which meant showing oneself to be an enemy by association? The party elections proceeded slowly and with great difficulty. 
the absence of lists in the absence of lists candidate each candidate had to be discussed individually and presumption was that uh, at least some of the candidates notably those who were incumbents would be unmasked as enemies in the course of the discussion when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The incumbent officers were understandably intimidated and paralysed. The rank and file once showed, uh, often showed little inclination to take initiative into their own hands. Somebody, sometimes there was difficulty getting the show off the ground at all because nobody wanted to speak. Some elections lasted for weeks. Uh, one, because nobody wanted to speak. Uh, uh, at one, Yaroslav Plant, for example... The 800 members of the Factory Party Organisation attended meetings every evening for more than a month before they managed to elect a new committee. So, th- this is really interesting. Um, the The purpose of the, of um, this kind of mass party democracy um, was to do nothing more than to create this 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 pantomime, this theatre by which uh, people, by the process, the process of denunciation could occur. Um, if you're trying to decide who should, um, uh, who should be elected and you have a, a list of candidates uh, chosen from above, of which some will always be denounced, you have to be the very, uh, the, the, the very sort of incisive um, electorate, a very incisive worker who picks the one who is kind of future-proofed. If you choose somebody who is later denounced, you're, you will be denounced yourself. So um, the, these were kind of scary and, 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 and dangerous times. Um, and it's hardly surprising you have workers taking sometimes months to, to decide and perhaps to uh, wait for the denunciations to actually have, have already happened. The party elections were no simple matter uh, in the Ministry of Heavy Industry, writes Sheila Fitzpatrick, where it took a week of careful weighing of eight, 80 candidacies 
to be a producer a list of 11 names. Some candidates were discredited in the course of, dis of the discussion. Uh, among them, the incumbent party, uh, the incumbent party secretary, Andrei Zaikov, who was alleged to have contract, uh, contacts with Trotskyite counter-revolutionaries and to have participated in a leftist group at the Institute of Red Professors in, in 1928 to 29. When Zykov failed to win re-election, that did not just mean he lost his job, but also that he was in acute danger of being arrested as a counter-revolutionary, which indeed was his fate. The same fate awaited other cri um, others criticised at the uh, prolonged meetings of the, at the ministry. For example, Georgi Givakaya, um, head of the Makiva metallurgical plant, whose, defini whose definitive unmasking as an enemy came only a few weeks after he'd been uh, worked over in this forum. So once the kind of the, um, the, the, the theatre had happened uh, and um, the uh, accusations had uh, been presented uh, and people had been... There's almost like a kind of little workplace show trial in, in a way it might take a while after that for actually the NKVD to, to turn up and, and do the arrest or the actual official uh, legal charges to be made because throughout all of this there is a kind of a, a juridical process there is um, a, uh, a kind of a, a legal um, system still operating where people are uh, charged with crimes the the trial might be a farce, but it still goes ahead in, in most cases, and except later on in the um, uh, in in the terror when the uh, the numbers of executions uh, have to that um, have to happen uh, as as dictated by Stalin uh, make that kind of an, an impracticality. The party elections of the uh, of the spring of 1937 were a one shot event. But uh, other kinds of electoral meetings were held periodically during the Great Purges and on these occasions were often perilous for the nominees. In January 1938, for example, writes Sheila Fitzpatrick, the trade union of government employees held its national conference and, according to the rules, proceeded to elect a new central committee of the union. Whether a list of candidates had been provided for this election or not is, is not clear from the minutes of the conference. Most likely it was, but in the climate of the Great Purges, that did not uh, prejudge the outcome. Each candidate uh, was required to make an autobiographical statement to the conference, and delegates cross-examined them on it. In a series of meetings that grew increasingly tense, delegates savaged several members uh, of the old committee who had been nominated, causing two of them to be knocked off the list, and cross-examined other candidates in an aggressive and threatening way about their civil war military records, social origin, Kulak connections, and so on. The scapegoating instincts of the delegates fastened on one hapless woman with relatives abroad, and, fail, uh, and a failed marriage she was unwilling to discuss. She escaped uh, being dropped from the list and declared an enemy of the people, only through the dramatic last-minute intervention by a senior delegate. Regional and other family circles uh, had, the, um, had their own tried and tested methods of defending members from outside threat. By family circles, these are um, the 
uh, the families of people in power and their uh, kind of network of friends. There's a blat network of um, you know, hangers-on and um, people who are uh, who, who owe them and uh, people who, who they are they are loyal to. Indeed, this was one of the main purposes of their existence. Thus, in response to the threats to individual family members early in 1937, the heads of the families, industrial managers, regional party secretaries, sprang to defensive action. For example, the head of a metal trust let, um, let some subordinates go at their own request when the heat got too great uh, and moved others to new jobs in different cities where they would be safer. Another industrial leader uh, let his right-hand man be prosecuted for sabotage after a bad accident, but at the same time gave him 12,000 rubles for his legal defence. Yet another, a regional representative of the Ministry of Heavy Industry, tried to rescue a disgraced factory director by appointing him as his assistant. In Sverdlovsk, um, the party committee uh, rallied to the support of the director of a local plant when he came under attack as a wrecker and blocked his expulsion from the party. In the Far East, regional officials resisted attempts to expel one of their own, Marvai Kvakin, who was secretary um, of the Jewish Autonomous Region, Birabijan. When it became clear that Kvakin could not be saved by action at the regional level, his friends encouraged him to go to Moscow to plead his case, gave him 5,500 rubles from party funds for the purpose of issuing him a pass that secured him a place on a Moscow train. This is really interesting, and it shows you, when we talk about everyday Stalinism, as in the title of the book, and the, uh, how society functions under the conditions of totalitarian rule, the point is that society is still there. I mean, it's profoundly affected by totalitarian rule, but it doesn't go away. The There are people who have friendships under the terror. There are people who, I suppose, are loyal to one another under the terror. There are family connections where people love one another under conditions of terror. And the there, there were still people, you know, party bosses, factory managers, who had a little bit of agency they could be listened to and they had a little bit of sway and they could commandeer a little bit of money here and there um, they could give um, people jobs when it was needed they could move people around when it was needed they could they understood the system that they uh, existed under they knew it was very very dangerous and many probably assumed that the uh, that, that they might be denounced themselves at some point in the future um, but this is part of how people try to endure and prosper, if possible, under extraordinary and, and monstrous um, uh, events. And you find it in, in all sorts of uh, different totalitarian societies. People have agency. There we go. Okay, folks, so I'll try to get another podcast in before Christmas, but if not, I wish you all a very lovely, happy, relaxing Christmas uh, period. And we're going to be back with some really cool stuff in 2023. Take good care, everybody. All the best. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much for uh, helping us over these 10 uh, long years of podcasting. 
Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.